0: Okay, we're in our 16th installment of Acts Reenacted. And the last passage that we looked at back before Christmas was all starting up, was we, looked, we spoke about the secular persecution that occurred uh, from Herod uh, against the apostles, uh, in particular James and Peter. And we read that, uh, Peter, uh, that Peter was imprisoned, James got beheaded, and then Peter was helped to supernaturally escape. You remember the story? Yep, excellent. And then we heard how Herod got his comeuppance at the end, right? You know, he had a number of times to be able to acknowledge God in all that he was going on around him. All the Herods had the opportunity to acknowledge God. You know, you know, Herod the Great had the opportunity to worship Him in His infancy and didn't. You know, and then you know, then and it just went on. So it's um, you know, he had a chance, many opportunities, but in the end, you know, he refused to abdicate his heart to God. And, uh, yeah, and he, you know, history and the Bible. You know, not, the Bible is a historical document, by the way. There's a lot of things in that that actually, you know, the Bible is a historically proven document. But there's other secular history sources as well that point to Herod being, uh, you know, dying from, uh, from being eaten by worms and, and having the infection that comes with that. So, dark thing. But now we're going to pick up the story now. We're going to go to the next theme. Uh, Luke is now turning his attention To their first missionary journey The one that Paul and Barnabas went on And, uh, and so we're going to pick up that story today And uh, we're going to pick up uh, Bits and pieces along the way So start at Acts 13 It's all on the screen as you go along And, uh, and if you have your Bibles Acts 13, keep your thumb in it And we'll revisit it a few times today but Let's start at verse 1 Now in the church in Antioch There were prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon called Niger Lucius of Cyrene Manan who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul while they were worshipping the Lord and fasting the Holy Spirit said set apart for me Saul and Barnabas for the work which I have called them to do so after that they fasted and prayed and they placed their hands on them and they sent them off now the first thing we notice right there I'll stop right there for a minute the first thing we notice about this text is the variety of people leading the church of Antioch under Saul and Barnabas you know, it had become a correct representation of its community. You know, the cosmopolitan nature of, of Antioch was being replicated with the cosmopolitan nature of the church of Antioch. We read among their prophets and teachers, there is a Cyprian Levite, a guy from Cyprus, a Levite from Cyprus named Barnabas. Uh, we have some Africans, Simon called, Simeon called uh, Niger. Many believe that's actually Simon the Serene, who was actually the guy who carried Jesus' cross. We've also got, uh, you know, Lucius, who's from Cyrene as well. That's in the North African region there. There was a blue blood named Manaean who lived in close quarters with Herod Antipas. And the Jewish Roman citizen, Saul of Tarsus, up there in Galatia. You know, it was a great representation of the cultural diversity of the city that they ministered to. Now, in the, in the church world today, and this is a bit of a thought there, in the church world today, we see churches that feel that they're only called to reach one people group in the community. You know, in Sydney, there are dozens, uh, hundreds of single nationality churches out there. You know, I, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of Chinese churches because there's a big Chinese community in, in that area. And a lot of these Chinese churches were trying to get me to come and run their English-speaking congregation. It was an interesting uh, environment to try and work with there. You know, I, I see that, and I I believe that basically facilitates migrants not wishing to fit into the scheme of the greater Christian community. In all honesty, you know, it, it's understandable if there's a language barrier. But if there's not, then there really is no excuse for it. There's others which deliberately target the richer people of their community, claiming that they're not equipped to handle the others that come in. Yeah, and there's churches that deliberately market themselves to, other, to smaller pockets of their community. Frankly, it's not that hard to be equipped to reach any person in the community. you just got to be a loving individual and a loving church. There you go. That's, that's the secret for it right there. The church in the New Testament didn't have any provision for any of that. It was just the church of the city, together in one mind, one accord, and regardless of heritage or background. And as the church in Antioch, they took that concept of oneness right to the very top, and they actually embraced that in their leadership ranks, which was excellent to see. We well, see it as this multicultural church that is the first to hear from the Lord about taking their faith further abroad. This was a church that had a very unique DNA about it. Unlike Jerusalem, they had no hindrances for mission at the time. You know, they, were not being, they were not facing the brutal Jewish persecution that Jerusalem was. Jerusalem was getting persecuted like you wouldn't believe. They were not being decimated by famine either, and Jerusalem was under famine. And they had an eye for reaching more of their kind in, Gentile, in the Gentile world. Again, a little bit unlike the Jerusalem church. They agreed in principle, but they hadn't quite got onto the program of actually going ahead and doing it just yet. And we see that the Holy Spirit is in agreement with them as well here. You know, it's clear that the Spirit is guiding this church to go and do more. And the church receives divine instruction. Remember, the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. This is divine instruction uh, to set Paul and Barnabas aside for a missionary expedition. We don't read that they're given a set path, but it makes good sense that the first trip went the way it did you know there's, it begins with the home region of Barnabas and ends with the home region of Saul of Tarsus so it actually makes good sense to take the, the, the route that they went on now as we engage with the next couple of chapters we see that Luke is only pulling out a few highlights from that particular tour we understand this one this one took ages this was a long tour that they went on and this was a pretty extensive journey a missionary journey this wasn't just a week away you know But I'm going to hone into three of these highlights that he presents because they show us some key things about evangelizing people with no experience in Jesus. Now, Luke has outlined three major belief blockers here. Belief blockers that will stop the advance of the gospel if we aren't on top of them as we engage with our unchurched friends and unchurched world out there. So we've got people who are completely completely unfamiliar with Jesus. Yet they reach for the gospel, and we see hindrances along the way, and we see Paul and Barnabas deal with them in a really wise way. So the first belief blocker that we see is is present in Cyprus. So we're going to keep reading from verses 4 to 12 here. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues, and John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, for that's what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, He believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Now the island of Cyprus was a prime piece of real estate because of its position in the shipping lanes between Syria uh, to the where Antioch was, uh, and Greece, which is off to the, uh, to the left of off screen, and Asia Minor, which is directly above there. Uh, it had once been Egyptian soil, but Rome actually took it off them a couple of decades before they ended up taking over Egypt as well. It had two main cities which the missionaries visited. You had Salamis to the east, you know, and uh, this was actually the administrative capital centre of the island, and Paphos to the west was a provincial capital. Our text tells us that Saul and Barnabas took the cross-island tour. So we're talking about 90 kilometres of travel, perhaps by foot. So this is an extensive trip already. You know, and they would have preached extensively along the way with any villages or anything that they found there. Now, Cyprus was g- governed directly from the Rome Senate, And they appointed a proconsul to oversee the island. Now, if you're trying to work out the ranks of ancient officials, which I know that you all are, uh, (laughs) Pontius Pilate, the guy who washed his hands at Jesus' trial, uh, he was a a procurator. He was an equal rank with a proconsul. Now, a procurator was appointed over hostile, unstable parts of the Roman Empire. And... (laughs) And, and uh, Judea and that area was certainly a unstable part of the empire. And as a result, people like uh, Pontius Pilate actually replied, who reported directly to the emperor because of the potential threats. A proconsul was given governorship over less hostile areas, more peaceful regions, and uh, so his role was to, to. And he reported to the Senate because the threat wasn't quite so great. So they're both governors, two different sorts of roles, two different sorts of leadership required. There, we see here that. Sergius Paulus is the Cyprian proconsul at the time, and our passage passage takes us straight to his quarters. As we read here, we can see that the proconsul is one of those people out there who's completely unprepared for what he's about to encounter. He's not Jewish. He's not even slightly aligned with them. He's not a follower of God in any way at all, but he's requested a hearing from these two visiting evangelists. Make no mistake, this is actually not initially a casual inquiry, by the way. You know, there's probably a bit of an uproar going on because that seemed to accompany Paul and Barnabas everywhere they went, right? Yeah, there was always uprisers and people going, wow, what is this new truth coming out? Yeah, and, and there's no doubt that the Sergius would have actually called them in for an audience first up to actually go, I want to make sure there's nothing uh, you know, harmful to the Empire in what you're bringing here. I want to make sure that what you're presenting is safe for the community. But we also see here that the first belief blocker is poised to strike as well. And we read about him when Luke introduces us, us to Bar Jesus or Elimus, the two names he was known by. Bar Jesus, Bar means son of, Jesus or Yeshua means salvation. Obviously, we our understanding of Jesus for that matter. And Elimus simply means magician or sorcerer. A sorcerer of the time was noted to perform supposed miracles and was able to, to manipulate the person he was performing for. He would no doubt have had some sort of demonic power to back him up, you know, and he would have produced a few miracles along the way. People would have actually known and seen some things that he would have done and accredited it to him. You know. But the work of a sorcerer was complete when he was pulling all the strings. And we also see a pattern here in play too, because we saw it in Samaria with Simon the sorcerer. When the, new, when the gospel was making an advance, sorcery raised its head in Samaria, didn't it? When the gospel makes its advance into Cyprus, sorcery makes its advance. When the gospel makes its advance into Wangaratta, sorcery will make its presence felt as well. As Christians, we understand that we have an enemy in the spiritual realm. It is his desire to occupy the hearts of those around us and to ensure that Jesus doesn't take up residence in his place. To do that, he will come across to people as the giver of fun, the source of all worldly wisdom and the permitter of all sorts of depravity in our lives. Probably want to shut that back door. <laughs> He's the voice that tells us that if it feels good, do it, and that we don't need any other influences in our lives except for his. It was effective in Cyprus back then, where even an uneducated wise man, uh, an educated and wise man like the proconsul, was under the spell of a sorcerer. And we know it's effective today because there is a huge fascination with the supernatural realm out there in the unchurched world around us. There's a huge fascination with it. While working in a high school in Perth and getting to communicate my faith back when I was living out that way, I was hanging out at Kelmscott High School. It was the second biggest school in the state. And uh, I got to work with kids there. It was great fun. But I got to know some of the teachers, and one of them was into the whole Mayan thing. Yeah, and now that it's 2013, I probably should get in touch with them and see how that's going for them. Others were heavy into white witchcraft, and, and they had no clue about the harm that that could actually bring to themselves. They had no clue. The darkness, if only they could have seen the darkness that I knew was behind it all. There's a lot of people out there dabbling with loads of different things. Ephesians 6 tells us that our primary war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers beyond what you and I can see, Right? Now, and the only way to fight that stuff is spiritually. You can't get the gloves out and go, let's take it on. You've got to get into a spiritual battle mode. And it's through prayer that these things are overcome. And that's exactly the tack Paul chooses in order to deal with what he encounters here. He takes the authority he knows he has through the Holy Spirit, and he's able to stand against the forces behind the work of Elimus. The servant of darkness was himself put into the dark of blindness. And when that influence was negated, we read that Sergius Paulus, the proconsul of Cyprus, became a believer that day. First up, the first belief blocker out there is understanding that there is a supernatural battle going on. That we need to pray into, and that we need to recognise, identify, and continually do battle with, in order to reach the unchurched friends of our of our society and the people that we are engaging with. You know, there is, there is uh, there's loads of that stuff going on. We need to be aware of it, and we need to be willing to engage spiritually as well as physically when we speak to them. The next stop in Luke's highlight reel appears when they get to a place called Pisidian Antioch. Pisidia is a bit further north, and, uh, you know, and uh, it was a strategic city with uh, significant military ex- administration there. Paul has begun to settle into a pattern now, and uh, his approach is by visiting synagogues first up, and he's doing that to find an audience that just might get it. You know, the Jews, and he's, he understood his call was to reach the Jews first and then the Greek. And so he went after the Jews first because they kind of had a background in this, in this things that he was talking about. So it was good to find some allies, if you know what I mean. And then when they refused to listen or when it was exhausted, that party would then go to the Gentiles and find them in his environment. We pick up the story after his sermon in the, in the synagogue of, of Pisidian Antioch, Antioch and we'll uh, read from our verses 42 here. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy they begin to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered him boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. The next Gentile belief blocker that Luke has identified here is exclusion. Exclusion. We read here that the Jewish synagogue of Pisidian Antioch, that was a long ways from home. It's a long way from, you know, in the scale of things, Jerusalem is down here. You know, like about about two feet below the screen. They're a long way from home and they were there to keep the torch, of, the torch of Judaism alive and well in their city and to ensure that the name of God, the God of Israel, had a stake in the ground even in Asia Minor. But they were an ineffective force. they began begun to operate with disdain for the rest of the Gentile world around them. And when the whole city decides one Sabbath to come to the synagogue to hear about the things of the God of Israel... The Jews of the city get caught up in jealousy rather than joy. This prompts Paul to pull out an Old Testament reminder of, of those of, of who they were as Jews were supposed to be. Quoting Isaiah 49.6, he points out that just being a light for their house of Jacob was only a small part of who they were supposed to be as the people of God. In fact, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentile world and carriers of salvation to that entire world we read here that immediately upon that statement the Gentiles of the city when they hear that became glad and many believed and the word of God was suddenly being spread through the region when they suddenly found out that God was for them it turned their sorrow into a joy it turned the jealousy of the the Jews a little bit higher but the Gentile world found joy from that there is a perception among many in the unchurched world that a faith community is something they don't think that they would fit into. Many people I speak with feel they aren't good enough. And yet, you can see a smile forming on the lips when I tell them I'm the minister and neither am I. Others are still looking for the relevance of the church to them and their community. Now, you and I could easily sit and argue and that if the church shut its doors tomorrow, the whole city would suffer. You and I could find loads of evidence to prove that, but it's not quite so apparent to the world just yet. For some of them, it's a matter of convenience. You know, if it's real, then they're accountable. But for others, it's a genuine perception, and to a degree, given the way the church conducts itself sometimes, kind you know, they have a bit of a valid point. The answer to that is what we communicate to them. What needs to come from us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is for every person to believe and receive. Church is not an exclusive club or an impregnable fortress. It's a place where anyone can engage with God and know him personally. Paul did this verbally in his context, with a source of, and it was a source of joy uh, to the godless people of that city. He did it non-verbally in future chapters, where he took his message away from the synagogue of a city and plopped himself in the middle of the marketplace and started preaching Jesus in the middle of where the people were. One of my heroes in ministry, a guy named Matthew Barnett, moved to Los Angeles, to one of the rough areas, the, the Latin district of Los Angeles, and in, instead of locking himself in his office where it was safe, he pulled his whole desk and phone and all that stuff, put it out on the street side, and actually waved the passers by as he formed, formed his sermons on the, you know, through the week. Now, that's a great picture of doing something like that. For us, we did something as simple as simply putting a smokers' bin out the front of the building. It's amazing what little things it takes to actually communicate belonging and openness to the world out there. You know, it's amazing what it, it, you know. It, it' amazing what what it takes to communicate an open door. It's also amazing what little things can damage that too. So exclusion. Let's not communicate exclusion. We aren't an exclusive bunch of people here. We're people saved by the grace of Jesus, not the privilege of Jesus you know, and uh, you know, let's not be like that Pisidian Antioch synagogue where they had yeah, it's too many words let's not be like that let's not keep God exclusive let's make him available to all the third and final element of Luke's highlight reel is found in chapter 14 and, that, and when they take their last stop in a place called Lystra and we'll pick up the ver- from verse 8 here well, let's pick up the story in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He'd been that way from birth and had never walked. He would to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him and saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas, they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, because, you know, um, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to occupy, offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and, and they rushed out to the crowd saying, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past he let all nations go their way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back to the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Tough crowd, eh? (laughs) Sacrifice one minute, being sacrificed the next. It was like, you know, Lystra was a peasant village. It wasn't a lot of educated people there, and the rulers over them were, in fact, retired soldiers. And what we read here at first is actually quite funny. If you understand what on earth went on, Paul and Barnabas had no clue what had hit them when they walked into that town. About half a century before their visit, a Roman poet named Ovid had retold the story of local legend, where it was believed the gods Zeus and Hermes came to earth in mortal form and went to over a thousand homes looking for lodging for the night. The only people that would actually show them an open door was an elderly couple in humble setting. The story goes on to say that because these people opened their homes, they actually, you know, Zeus and Hermes decided to bless this couple and turned their humble abode into a big golden temple. And for the thousand or so people who, who, um, who would not open their doors, they destroyed their homes and the people with a flood. That was the story of legend that they were quite familiar with. It was in their recent modern history um, uh, literature. So when these new evidently powerful men come into town, there was no way they were going to anger their gods like that again. Paul and Barnabas probably had no clue until the priest came out with the bulls and a knife in tow. You see, out of their religious experience, we see that Luke has given us the third and final belief blocker in, the, in their missionary tour here. And that belief blocker is superstition. Superstition. The Lyconian understanding of their gods was that they should never put a foot wrong with them or the consequences would be dire. In fact, as we read in history about all these gods that were around in biblical times, It seemed that every God had to be kept appeased or kept at bay. You know, if a God was going to be somehow near, then it was because disaster was looming. And they did all they could to keep their gods happy. That's why we read about them sacrificing their children, about them prostituting themselves, about worshipping and hurting themselves and self-harming. Just look at the Mount Carmel experience, how they would cut themselves to actually try and make their god happy and and answer by fire and and all these different things. Loads of awful pagan practice was there because they felt their gods needed to be appeased by doing those things. Their understanding of religion was superstitious and fear driven. While some people feel they don't belong, others feel unworthy, feel like unworthy objects when it comes to Jesus Christ or God for that matter. There is an understanding amongst many in our community today that God is angry with them and that they will never ever stack up to them it seems in their best interest to stay as far from God as they could possibly get because coming front and center before him is just too scary to ponder. We see Paul's response to that. It was a short sermon and a totally pagan based message here. There's no Bible to point out their sins, nothing to show their place in the covenant plan like he would for the Jews. In fact, his message was simply derived from the world around them. There is one true God who is living and active and he's not made of stone. He made everything around us here. Those majestic mountains you see on the horizon and that's actually a real account. Everything that grows in the sea and on the earth. And he's constantly displaying his kindness towards you. Your crops grow, the rain falls, you draw breath because the one true living God provides all those things. He is a source of your provision and the true source of your joy. Don't worship those statues. Don't worship us for that matter either. Instead, turn to the living Jesus Christ, the one true giver of life, and worship him. That's the message in a nutshell there. That's the simplicity of our gospel message right there. We don't need to know chapter and verse all the time to reach people for Jesus. We just need to be able to point to a real, loving, kind, and joy-providing Jesus who wants to take residence in their hearts. So we have one massive trip here. Three key highlights, three major keys to ministering to a Gentile world. It's a world that hopefully you are joining me in commitment to reaching. We've all got unbelieving friends and family, and I know that they're on our hearts often. Let those three things sit in our hearts and pull them out. Pull those gems out when you, when you feel they're appropriate or, or, or feel, when you learn how to react, to react to different situations as you engage with them further. Let me remind you, stand and fight in the spiritual realm against the spiritual forces at work in their lives. Let us give ourselves to earnest prayer and walk in the authority that the Holy Spirit gives us. There's loads of things out there that are demonic in origin. Be faithful to pray against those things and you'll see those strongholds fall. Understand that there are... Yeah, seriously, he works like a subtle beast. That one, you know, and he will. There will. He, you'll find him pulling the strings of even the most, you know, you know, the least, you know, the least, uh, you know, sort of bound person. If you know what I mean. Second, communicate acceptance. This doesn't mean approval, for there are things in their life and ours, for that matter, that should not be approved, because our sinful ways are at odds with God. In other words, God does not approve of our sinful ways, but. He's not unwilling to accept us into his hand and into his kingdom. Third, take the time to bring truth and clarity to their religious experiences. It's amazing how superstitious we can all be when we think about God. The simplest one of all is people who think the walls will cave in if they walked into church. And that's just a start. And as we go into communion right now, we're going to separate the reality from the superstition can I have a couple of our uh, people just bring that communion table front and center please uh, that would be great, thank you, thank you guys thank you very much we're going to come around a time of communion with those three things in our mind but let's look at the clarity for a minute here yes our sin angers God Romans tells us that our sin attracts God's wrath. Now, a superstitious heart will stop there and go, that's it, God's angry with me. But that's not the end of the story. How many know that? The truth of the matter is that God has already poured out his wrath for sin. But he didn't pour it on us. He poured it on himself at the cross. Yes, God is near. And it's not because he's looking for evidence to destroy us, but it's fact, he is in fact drawing near because he wants to restore relationship with us. He came so that we could be reconciled to him. Yes, God knows we're guilty of sin, but our guilt is dealt with. I didn't get to expl- the time to examine the details of Paul's sermon in the synagogue of Pisidian Antioch. But a key verse of that, you can go back in your own time, is in chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, where it says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. key word of that verse is justified, meaning a not guilty verdict. The act of justification means that God takes off the garment of our guilt and instead puts on, when we place our faith in him, he puts on us a garment of righteousness. He doesn't see the guilt of you and I when we stand before him in Christ. He sees the blood it took to buy us back. That's the clarity of the gospel right now. We don't come to Jesus thinking that anything we do can appease God. Jesus did all that for us. And the cross is a place that helps us to come to a place of not guilty and become righteous in his sight. He doesn't see the sin, he sees the blood through the work of the cross and through our faith in Jesus. That's enough to melt even the most superstitious heart right there if we can go further with them. We're going to come around a time of communion. Let's remember the cross. Let's remember the cost that it took to buy us back. We are blood-bought saints. We were bought back. That's what redeemed means. We were bought back through the work of the cross and what Jesus went through for us. Let's pray, and then when you're ready, come forward, receive the the, uh, the communion.